Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On this program, I'll be continuing the discussion I began last week on the topic of faith and proof, and we'll be airing part two of my conversation with Dr. Mike Farley of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. But first, I'd like to read a few selections from representatives of the early church as it relates to the issue of proving faith. The Apology of Justin Martyr was written sometime around 150 AD and was addressed to the Roman emperor. Now, though the word apology in contemporary English sounds like an attempt to say sorry, in the ancient world, an apologia was simply a defense or an attempt to vindicate one's position by means of evidence and argumentation. And in his apologia, Justin Martyr writes this. Lest anyone should meet us with the question, what should prevent that he whom we call Christ performed what we call his mighty works by magical art, and by this merely appeared to be the Son of God? We will now offer proof, not trusting mere assertions, but being of necessity persuaded by those who prophesied of him before these things came to pass. For with our own eyes we behold things that have happened and are happening, just as they were predicted. And this will, we think, appear even to you the strongest and truest evidence. We do not make mere assertions without being able to produce proof, like those fables that are told of the so-called sons of Jupiter. With what reason should we believe of a crucified man that he is the firstborn of the unbegotten God, unless we had found testimonies concerning him published before he came? And unless we saw that certain things happened accordingly, such as the devastation of Jerusalem, or that men of every race were persuaded by his teaching and began to reject their old habits? So many things, therefore, as these, when they are seen with the eye, are enough to produce conviction and belief in those who embrace the truth and who are not bigoted in their opinions nor governed by their passions. But those who hand down the myths of the gods adduce no such proof. You'll notice, first of all, that Justin didn't advocate for any form of blind faith, since in his view this would be equivalent to trusting mere assertions. 
He also didn't seem to be a fan of the idea that faith is somehow related to our feelings, for he clearly rejects the idea that men should be governed by their passions. No, Justin was persuaded by evidence, which in his view proved and vindicated the claim that Jesus really was God in human flesh. Another ancient writer by the name of Eusebius of Caesarea wrote an important book in the early 4th century titled Proof of the Gospel, in which he too argued that fulfilled prophecy was a convincing proof of the claims made by the earliest Christians. In this important work, Eusebius writes this, If so many things were proclaimed by the Hebrew divines, and if their fulfillment is so clear to us all today, who will not marvel at their inspiration? Who will not agree that their beliefs must be sure and true, since their proof is to be found not in artificial arguments, but in simple and straightforward teaching, whose genuine and sincere character is attested by the virtue and knowledge of God evident in these inspired men? Men who were enabled not by human but divine inspiration to see from a myriad ages back what was to happen long years after may surely claim our confidence. Because of the extraordinary foreknowledge shown in the prophetic writers and of the actual events that occurred in agreement with their prophecies, all men should be convinced of the inspired and certain nature of the truth we hold. And this should silence the tongues of false accusers who say that we are unable to present a clear demonstration of the truth we hold and think it enough to retain those who come to us by faith alone. And as they say that we only teach our followers like irrational animals to shut their eyes and staunchly obey what we say without examining it at all. Our conversion, Eusebius concludes, was due not to emotional and unexamined impulse, but to judgment and sober reasoning. End quote. Now, of course, when Eusebius criticized the use of the phrase faith alone, he wasn't being critical of the doctrine that Martin Luther and other reformers later celebrated during the Protestant Reformation, because he wasn't thinking at all about the way that faith relates to salvation. No, instead, he was addressing the way that faith relates to knowledge. So, for example, if you happen to trust someone, it's likely that you do so because of what you know about that person. But if someone inquired as to why you trust a particular individual, and you responded by saying, I don't know, I, I just do. This is the kind of faith that Eusebius was critical of. You see, in his view, faith in Jesus wasn't blind or irrational and was not the result of emotional or unexamined impulses, but was completely in accord with sound judgment. And the primary evidence that Eusebius offered in favor of this conclusion, once again, was fulfilled prophecy. This evidence is so clear, he says, that all men should be convinced of the inspired and certain nature of the truths that Christians profess. Well, if you've heard any of my previous episodes, you'll know that the overwhelming majority of Christians I recently interviewed seem to think that faith isn't something that can be proved. It's just some kind of inner gut feeling or intuition. Now, according to Eusebius, those who accused the believers of his day of having this type of blind faith had actually created a caricature of the Christian position. But unfortunately, in our day, this no longer appears to be the case. Most of the believers I talked with seem to be living caricatures who represent well the position once ridiculed by the ancient opponents of the Christian faith. Well, not long after the time of Eusebius, Augustine also wrote about the relationship between faith and proof. In his reply to Faustus the Manichaean, Augustine observed that a careful reading of the writings of the Old Testament prophets, quote, leaves no room for perverse denial or even skeptical uncertainty. Every reader, he says, can understand the words, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter from Isaiah 53, and the whole of that plain prophecy. 
which also says, With his stripes we are healed, and that he bore our sins. We have a special poetical gospel in Psalm 22, which says, They have pierced my hands and my feet, and they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. The blind may even now see the fulfillment of the conclusion of that psalm, which says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the kingdoms of the nations shall worship before him. Besides the conversion of the Gentiles, now so universal as prophesied of Christ in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are the events of the history of the Jews themselves. Their holy place is thrown down, the sacrifice has ceased, all of which is clearly foretold in the writings of Daniel. The apostles quoted the predictions of the prophets in order to prove the truth and importance of their doctrines. For although their preaching was accompanied with the power of working miracles, the miracles themselves would have been ascribed to magic unless the apostles had shown that the authority of the prophets was in their favor. The testimony of the prophets who lived so long before cannot be ascribed to magical arts. End quote. Well, through all these quotations, I hope it's becoming increasingly clear to you that Christians from these much earlier periods in church history focused not on their own subjective inner feelings or hunches, but on what they consider to be objective evidence and proof. And as it happens, all this is entirely consistent with what we find from the very beginning of the biblical narrative. As we saw in the last program, the Bible itself nowhere promotes any form of blind faith, but instead actually encourages a kind of healthy skepticism when it comes to evaluating the messages of those who claim to speak for God. In fact, according to the book of Deuteronomy, there were two specific criteria that needed to be met before a true prophet could officially be recognized by the ancient Israelite people. The first criteria was that the message needed to be consistent with the teaching already laid down by Moses. And the second was that the person needed to have a proven and established record of describing future events before they occurred. The people were not encouraged to take a leap of faith in supposing that Isaiah was a truly inspired prophet. In fact, it was just the opposite. What we saw is that they were forbidden to do so unless the evidence from the real world ended up confirming and proving the true prophetic character of Isaiah's pronouncements. Well, so now here's part two of my conversation on this subject with Dr. Mike Farley of Covenant Theological Seminary. One of the texts that comes to mind when we think along these lines for me is um, the way God describes himself in the writings of Isaiah. Chapter 41 in particular, we find this. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell them what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may know their outcome. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. You know, God is sort of taunting the idols yes. of the land because they are dumb. They don't speak. They can't declare what's past. They can't declare what's to come in the future. And yet, what does God do through his servant Isaiah? He just keeps speaking these things that come to pass. And they come to pass with amazing clarity. I mean, what Isaiah says, he, first of all, he will describe the invasion of Sennacherib. Yes. The Assyrian army destroys most of the Israelites, surrounds Jerusalem, but then doesn't overtake Jerusalem. Yes. And then there he, would have been no reason to think uh, – no observer looking at that scenario would have said this was a likely outcome. Right. 
Yeah. And, and yet we actually have some archaeological evidence that confirms this. You know, we do find yes. Sennacher boasting about having trapped Hezekiah like a caged bird. But there is no sort of boasting like you have for other the other nations that he decimated. You know, yeah. he will talk about, you know, laying waste to the place. But there's no celebration in the writings of Sennacherib that he had laid waste to Jerusalem. Yep. We actually do find references in Herodotus that he came to the region and because of a plague, he headed back to his own country where he later died, yes. which is very yeah. similar to the biblical narrative. Yeah. But okay, so there's the Sennacherib story. Then there's the uh, Babylonian story. Isaiah will talk about the fall of Israel, the entire nation of Israel, including Jerusalem, will be overtaken by Babylon. All the residents will be hauled off to Babylon you know, because of the people's infidelity. Now you're going to be laid waste. Yes. And that also is a, is a striking prophecy that an observer of that day would not have found very plausible yeah. because at that particular moment, Babylon was no great power. Right. Uh, they were a minor little regional, you know, wing of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, there was no way to know um, yeah, for sure in... by any kind of natural, you know, uh, prediction or flow of yeah. events that that would have been Isaiah is writing this sometime around 700 BC. These events happened 586 BC. Yes. So this is quite off in the distance. Then later he sees that the people will be restored by Cyrus, the Persian king, mentions him by name. Cyrus is God's servant who yes. uh, says, you know, you may return to your lands. And these texts are so clear. Scholars say, well, it has to be a different Isaiah. It has to be somebody else writing in the name of the original Isaiah. But when you actually look at that hypothesis, it doesn't make any sense. The most convincing thing to me is the fact that you have what appears to be amazing prophetic announcements of what happens after the time of Isaiah in chapter 52 and 53, where yeah. you see the suffering servant. Basically, it's like a chapter from one of the gospels 700 years in advance. Yes. So we can see, just taking Isaiah as one example, this is why his writings were added to the canon of Moses, because he spoke in his own day about things that came to pass in his own lifetime. And yes. then also things that happened 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years, 700 years later. Yes. So we have copies of Isaiah that predate the time of Jesus, right? So we yes. can see the Dead Sea Scroll copy of Isaiah. This was around before the time of Christ, and yet it's describing so clearly all that Jesus did. So that, to me, is a great confirmation that this is not a, an ordinary human text. Yes. The divine voice is speaking through these words. Yes. So there, there are short-term predictions, there are sort of medium-term predictions, and there's very long-range predictions that you all find in Isaiah's work. And it's almost like there's a, there are kinds of medications that are time-release medications. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, this is like almost like time-release prophecies right. that, that unfold, you know, uh, at different periods in the future so that we can have increasing confirmation that what Isaiah is writing is true. And, and so uh, then what do you see in the New Testament? You see Peter going... From place to place, Peter and the other apostles, proclaiming what they have seen with their eyes, mm -hmm. but which also fulfilled that which was foreseen. Yes. It's not just like strange eyewitness testimony of something weird that happened one day. A lot of paganism is rooted in this too. You have some strange occurrence and then meaning is is laid on top of it. Okay, yes. so this strange weather event that stopped the wedding ceremony was a portent mm -hmm. that the two should not join and therefore yes. uh, the clans were separated from that day. Okay, so you're reading into the sign, but the biblical revelation is 
Jesus first says stop, and that then the storm calms. There's the announcement yes. beforehand, yes. and then there's the action. There's a, Isaiah's announcement of what will happen, and then it happens. Yes. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the main apologetic tools in terms of how Christianity grows and explodes. This is what Paul's doing in the synagogues. He's reasoning yes. with them about fulfilled prophecy. And, yeah. and I just think it's a missing emphasis today. Yes. In the book of Acts, you see it especially as a technique that Paul uses with Jewish communities Mm -hmm. who already have a prior awareness and knowledge of of these prophecies, of course. When he goes to Athens, he has to start from a different place. Yeah, because they don't even – they're not even aware of the But even in Athens, he's tying together the knowledge that they do have of God from various sources into uh, the story of the resurrection, which is the story of the the biblical narrative uh, that way. But then – those who do become converts quickly get schooled and instructed in the revelation yes. of Moses. And yes. so he praises, for example, the Bereans mm-hmm. for not just accepting his apostolic word, but mm-hmm. for checking, Deuteronomy 13, checking to see if whether or not the things he was speaking about Jesus were really proclaimed there in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, a great number of the, of the Gentile converts, the non-Jewish converts who became Christians in the early centuries of the church – did so because they first got associated with Jewish synagogues. Uh, right. They first became students of the Old Testament in these Jewish contexts. And even if they didn't fully become Jews in sort of the full convert sense, nevertheless, they themselves had become students of it, which is why the Bereans can do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and and so, so, yes, fulfilled prophecy is a – you know, for a long time in the, in the church's history has been a, a very important kind of argument mm-hmm. uh, to demonstrate. Because Christianity is is historically rooted, making historical claims, it matters that we can show this consistency historically uh, of what God has done and the, uh, the, the power of these criteria uh, to right. confirm its truthfulness. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I think it right. fulfills both criteria because yeah. it shows the consistency from the revelation of Moses forward. Yes. And it also shows that these prophets, including Moses, were able to speak clearly about Jesus in type and shadow and sometimes in very concrete ways that ultimately came to pass. Yes. And, and it's especially effective, I think, to try to find places in the Old Testament where there is a pretty clear predictive element that are, that's describing a particular individual. Uh, there, there are lots of passages in the Old Testament that are related to Jesus, lots and lots and lots. But some of those passages don't quite have a, a really clear predictive capacity. We can see in retrospect as we look back how everything that Jesus came to say and to do fits these general patterns of what God is doing. But there are some particular passages that are very clearly describing a singular individual who will come at a particular point in time that that I think do have this very strong predictive element so that a person reading that, even in, say, Isaiah's time, could read that passage and say, oh, this is a prophecy about a coming individual, you know, who will be a king and have these certain characteristics. And I think those passages in particular are really interesting. And you see a number of them in the book of Isaiah. Most strikingly, what you were referring to earlier there in Isaiah 53 um, there's a reason why the church has sometimes called Isaiah the fifth gospel. Right. Uh, because so many passages here in the latter half of the book especially, um, but not exclusively, uh, re- refer to a coming king uh, who will have characteristics that, that are high, very exalted, that are indeed are divine. Kings will um, shut their mouths at him, you know. Yes. This is the king of kings, really. Yes. And yes. yet, but that lifting up and exaltation turns quickly in that passage from late part of 52 to he was also marred and disfigured and 
despised. And I think John's gospel actually ties that in nicely because it's the narrator who says he said this speaking of the kind of death he was going to die, uh, referring to when Jesus says, I will be lifted up and worshiped by all men. But that lifting up is language from Isaiah. He will be highly lifted up and exalted. But he spoke of the manner of his death. So it's this exaltation that is actually the same as his humiliation. He's exalted at the cross. Yes. Yes. And you get that interpretation actually built into it in Isaiah. Yeah. That's what's amazing. Right. It's not just that the apostles were inventing their own meanings for, the, right. for, for Jesus' death. Uh, the, the very theological purpose and meaning of the death of the servant in Isaiah 53 is already there in Isaiah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it, it, the specificity of this is so striking. Uh, he will attract the attention of kings. Uh, he'll be a man of sorrows, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. Mm-hmm. You know, the very manner of his, of his death uh, corresponds so closely to Which Jesus' Which is language experience. you also find in uh, Psalm 22, pierced my hands and my feet. Yes. In Zechariah's language is, uh, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. It's, it's Yahweh speaking. They yes. will look upon me whom they have pierced. And the result of that is the cleansing for the people. Yeah. Laid in a, laid in a grave and not just laid in a grave, a, a rich man involved in his burial, mm, yeah. which happens with Joseph of Arimathea. Um, but, but also the meaning of this, that, that it, was, it, was, it was that the suffering servant would bear the iniquities of his people, that, that God would lay on him the iniquities of us all. Yeah. Uh, there's this substitution element that's so powerfully strong uh, in, the, in this passage. This is a servant who's coming to bear the sins of his people so that they might be delivered. And then he's raised from the dead. Yeah, he's uh, cut on, off on the, from the land of the living. He's laid in the grave. It's clearly death, yes. but then he sees light, and then at the very end of it, he has this sort of victory celebration uh, as he's dividing the spoils. So yeah. th- this, that's an unusual thing for dead people to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I love the way that Paul sort of summarizes this as the gospel that he had received in 1 Corinthians 15. Mm-hmm. Paul says, this is the thing of first importance. There are a lot of important things in the Bible. But the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the thing of first importance. So we can't lose sight of this thing, the gospel, the good news. And it's news. So it's something that has happened, not just a feeling in my heart. Um, The feeling in your heart may be good news. But sometimes, as C.S. Lewis said, sometimes feelings come, sometimes they go. Mm -hmm. But there's good news even when you don't feel this. Yes. Part of the reason that, that it is the thing of first importance is because it's been attested not only by Peter and the other apostles, but by Isaiah 700 years in advance. Yes. And so even though we weren't there to have the first person encounter with Jesus on earth in the way that that the apostles did in the first century, we now have written testimony that we can compare across centuries and centuries uh, of time to see how the Bible fulfills its own criteria, that the acts of God over many, many centuries culminating in Jesus actually is is a deeply consistent pattern. And one that fulfills the, the, the predictive element yeah. uh, of, of prophecy. So again, these two tests from Deuteronomy, we can see are being fulfilled by looking at the completed revelation that yeah. we have in all of the biblical books together. That's one way that in, some, in one way, we're actually in a better position than some people who were in the biblical story because we now have the fullness of this written revelation and can now see the... The, so the full story yeah. and the way it fits together and the internal consistency and harmony of what God has been saying 
through dozens of authors over multiple centuries, and yet with this amazing sort of internal unity in its portrayal of God, in its portrayal of, of God's purposes in the world, of, of the salvation he brings, um, and the confirmations of how he proves the truthfulness of this word in historical events. Yeah, one of the things I think of along those lines is, um, you know, just think about this line from Isaiah 52 that we've talked about. Kings shall shut their mouths because mm -hmm. of him. This is going to go international, basically is what Isaiah is saying. Yeah. But that promise has actually been there from the very beginning. I mean, God spoke to Abraham and said, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Yes. And that seed grows over time throughout the revelation of Israel. So you get these little hints that this is going to not just be for Israel. Yes. So you look at the promises of Isaiah, you know, he has these passages where the coming Messiah will be a light to the Gentiles and that all the people will come streaming into Zion, you know. I mean, even Psalm 22, which I alerted to earlier, which has the piercing of the hands and feet, the end of that psalm is all the nations yes. will come worshiping before Yahweh. This is going to go international. Well, we weren't there. We, we can sort of have the doubting moments where we're like Thomas. Okay, I don't trust what you and all the others are saying. You know, you may meet a person who says, you know, I read all this stuff in the Bible. I just don't know if it's real or not. Well, one thing you can do is you can say, Look at these promises that were made 3,000 years ago to Abraham and look how they grow and look around now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this yes. Jewish Messiah who was promised here 3,000 years ago has the biggest religion in the world. I mean, if, if Jesus had a Facebook page, he'd have the most followers, I think, of anybody. <laughs> yeah. Probably does have a Facebook page. But don't <laughs> trust anything you read on that page. Uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. You can look now. We, we have a better vantage point than Peter did. Right, Because they only saw the very beginnings of that promise being fulfilled, that this would go to all the coastlands and to the ends of the earth. Mm -hmm. we, we actually live at the ends of the earth. We're on the opposite side of the globe, and yes. we're talking about this some 2,000 years yes. after Jesus was yes. living. That is always good for us to remember, too. We, uh, <laughs> we are not the center of the biblical story. <laughs> we, we, we should always be saying, can you believe the gospel came even to us yeah, right. <laughs> here at the ends of the earth? Uh, uh, for sure. Yeah, it, it, it is really striking how if you can compile multiple passages in, in Old Testament prophetic books and sort of develop a profile of, of this singular individual that they're talking about uh, who would come to be a king from the line of David, uh, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, as, as Isaiah describes him in Isaiah 11. Born in Bethlehem, um, Micah 5.2. Mike, yes. Born in Bethlehem, who would come to be a shepherd to his people, who would be a king, who, who brings peace and justice to all the nations, who will be a priest, um, although not a priest like the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, a priest in the line of Melchizedek, yeah. this totally minor figure uh, yeah. in, in, in the book of Genesis, which is somehow uh, already an example of a, of a different kind of priesthood that Jesus will have that nevertheless fulfills the old um, in many ways. So you can sort of build up this profile and ask, is this what we see in Jesus? And in text after text after text, all these passages line up. And, and so if we would ask, is Jesus the one about whom these are speaking? I would simply ask, well, who else fits all these criteria as well or better than the historical Jesus? I can't think of anyone who comes remotely close to satisfying the criteria. And what's especially striking is how many of these prophetic texts are about things that no mere human being could control. Right. I mean, perhaps a skeptic could say, well, maybe Jesus tried to present himself as a Messiah figure because 
he knew that there were these predictive prophecies and he went about just trying to fit himself to this pattern. But he got some, the two donkeys together. He's let's stream into you know Jerusalem riding in on a donkey. Yes, exactly. Like I can kind of do these yeah. actions and sort of make myself fit this profile. But so many of these features are about something that no one could control: uh, the place of his birth, the particular forerunner who would come in advance of him. Mm-hmm. There are prophecies about John the Baptist, um, the impact that he would have on the rest of the world. Uh, the, the, the precise manner of his death, which was really quite out of his hands mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Um, and I think about like the way the Jewish mindset has always been trained to be careful about false prophets who come mm-hmm. with a different message or with fake miracles. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the, those criteria are really important, especially when you think about the fact that this community, the Christian community, came proclaiming that Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament promises mm-hmm. and they're proclaiming stuff that they'd seen happen with their own eyes, right? Mm-hmm. So the Jewish mindset was actually trained to be somewhat skeptical and shouldn't just believe anything without testing. So are we to believe yes. that this thing grew, it, it exploded? I mean, if you look at like, where is Paul writing his letters? Yes. He's writing to churches throughout Asia Minor and in Greece and in Rome. That's in the 50s and 60s, right. Thessalonians, late 40s. So there are believers, Jews and Gentiles together worshiping around the world already, only Mm -hmm. decades after. This thing is exploding. So why did no one ask the original disciples, like, was Jesus really born at Bethlehem? Can we check the genealogical records? Did he really have his side Mm. thrust with a spear? That would be the kind of thing that... It was their duty to check these things out, mm-hmm. you know, based mm-hmm. on the criteria that we've discussed. Mm-hmm. And yet there isn't any conversation about that. What we do find in the Jewish writings subsequently, mostly we hear a silence. But what we do find is Jesus did perform miracles, but he was a sorcerer like the Egyptians. He, was, he had the power, but he was leading people astray. He yeah. was a deceiver. Yeah, clearly there were lots of Jewish people in the first century who didn't come to believe in Jesus, yeah. you know. But e- even there, the, the the very nature of their rejection um, already does admit certain things that were true about Jesus. He did signs that were undeniable, yeah. uh, that were supernatural. Uh, but the, the very existence and growth of the church, as we've been saying, is itself an evidence. The church took root initially in Jerusalem amongst a group of pious, believing Jews. You know, for, there has been a tendency in the last couple centuries to argue that Christian ideas came from various pagan sources. Greek and pagan, yeah. That, that it was persuasive to people in a first century setting because there are myths of dying and rising gods right. and certain Greek myths and, and other ancient Near Eastern stories. And somehow the, the apostles sort of wove together all of these sort of bits and pieces of these stories from their thing. But that just ignores the cultural and religious context of the birth of the church. The church was born amongst a group of believing, committed first century Jews who, uh, let's say, it would be an understatement to say that they rejected pagan myths. Um, the, the Jews at that time set themselves over against all yeah. the other pagan peoples and, and their gods quite strongly. Yeah. In fact, the problem of their day was, was a separation so stark that they wanted nothing to do with yeah. Gentiles. I mean, that's the temptation for yeah, Jews Peter in the got first in century. for eating with them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The question is, can I even go in their house, yeah. let alone yeah. borrow their right. religious ideas? Yeah. You know, yeah, they, they, those... the particular Jews amongst whom the, the Christian church originally rose would have had no attraction to religious ideas outside of Judaism whatsoever. We know from historical sources they were hostile uh, to all of those stories. So somehow you have to be able to explain how the church was established and, and became convincing 
to believing first century Jews. Uh, that in and of itself is, is, is a piece of data that needs to be explained somehow. And, and this is why I partly find this so compelling. It's, it's, I find it virtually impossible to be able to explain the very existence of the church and its rapid yeah. growth in the way if there wasn't a divine reality behind it. Because there's, there just doesn't seem to be any plausible historical uh, reasons right. why a first century Jew would come to believe these claims. Yeah. And we already know that there were already other false messiahs that had even we do. come and, Josephus talks and, about and flamed out right. uh, in just the few decades prior to the coming of Jesus even. Yeah. So we know that Jesus was not unique. Uh, there were other messiahs who were proved to be false. So something unique happened with Jesus that made a global movement literally explode into the Roman Empire in a way that no other competing Jewish movement ever had. And so. if I look at the kinds of writings, I mean, people say that the Gospel of John is the latest of the four Gospels. I think that may be true, but I, I'm not convinced that it's as late as people say. Yeah. Um, it definitely is not easily caricatured as this sort of late Greek yes. apologetic for pagans. If you actually look at the structure of this gospel, it's everywhere using the language that appeals to people in first century Judea. Yeah. Uh, Jesus comes to the temple and proclaims himself to be the light of the world during the feast in which the lights were shining. Mm -hmm. He claims to be the true living water at the time when the water ritual was poured. He claims to be the bread of heaven at the time of the Passover. All these allusions to things that were meaningful to Jews but not to Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you also have him performing miracles that were closely investigated by the religious authorities of those days. They're yes. interviewing the man born blind, talking to his parents. I mean, this is something that was people were very like, we have to get to the bottom of this because they're trying to fulfill the criteria yeah. from Deuteronomy. Yeah. Like, is yeah. this real or not? Yeah. So I think we, it can be easy to forget that all of this took place in the presence of hostile witnesses, right. uh, hostile enemies who wanted nothing more than to disprove everything that was happening and to discredit everything that was happening here among this new Jesus movement. And some who were hostile became uh, proponents like yeah. the Apostle Paul himself. Yes. So so there is a kind of personal transformation that we can appeal to yeah. and say that's its own kind of external evidence also. Well, before we wrap up, I want us to interact with the lines from Eusebius, the Bishop of Caesarea, third and fourth century writer. Some people might be familiar with his church history, but he also wrote a, a book called The Proof of the Gospel in which he argued that fulfilled prophecy provides convincing evidence of the supernatural origin of the faith. He says, if so many things were proclaimed by the Hebrew divines, and if their fulfillment is so clear to us all today, who would not marvel at their inspiration? All men should be convinced of the inspired and certain nature of the truth we hold. This should silence the tongues of false teachers who slander us by saying that we are unable to logically present a clear demonstration of the truth we hold and think it enough to retain those who come to us by faith alone and call them, therefore, the faithful because of their faith as distinct from reason. Mm -hmm. He's describing the caricature of his critics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what we heard from a lot of the people who claim to be Christians today is they are a living caricature mm -hmm. of the opponents of Christianity that Eusebius was mm -hmm. talking about. And he concludes by saying, our conversion was due not to emotional and unexamined impulse, but to judgment and sober reasoning. What do you think about those lines as you sort of take it all in? Yeah, well, I think what we see here is 
the very consistent kind of approach to the faith that we see in the greater Christian tradition, which has always been to argue, as Eusebius is arguing here, which is that we have objective evidence that the God who's the creator and Lord of heaven and earth has actually acted in real space, time, and history in ways that we can know and that we can observe, and that its credibility rests on our ability to recognize that reality and, and truthfulness. It's not an appeal to our feeling. It's an appeal to reason and to faith on the basis of reason, mm -hmm. as we said in the beginning. Well, how would you um, counsel a person who comes to you saying, okay, so you're basically using the Bible to confirm the Bible. It's kind of a circular argument. You're believing what it says here about Moses. And then you say over here, it connects to that. Isn't it just a, a circular argument? It's not reasonable. It's actually still on a rational leap. Well, it's not really that kind of circular claim because we're not simply saying believe Isaiah because of what John says and believe John because of what Isaiah says. We're, we're not saying something as simplistic as that. Rather, we're, we're recognizing that if we're thinking about the prophecies we've been talking about, we're claiming that we can recognize on the basis of what we know from history that these books of the Bible were created and written and put together at different points in history. Uh, we have good reasons to believe that Isaiah comes from many centuries prior to, to the New Testament era. Yeah. You know, we, we know this for good historical reasons. And so it's on the basis of that sort of historical framework that we can then say, isn't it amazing that these things that Isaiah said, you know, centuries and centuries before Jesus actually fit what happens later. So in one sense, we're, we're appealing to a sort of the, the internal consistency of the story. Mm -hmm. And we're also appealing to the ways that those books are also grounded in history themselves. So we're really appealing to historical knowledge uh, and how these texts are reflective of what we know about real human history. Yeah, I would say you don't have to assume the inspiration mm -hmm. of any of the Old Testament texts, mm -hmm. just as the way that God does not instruct the Israelites to automatically assume the inspiration of Moses. He gives them signs, right? Yes. So it's not impious to search for evidence of the authenticity of this word. So just start with it as being possibly historical texts, maybe with a lot of questions attached, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. then read some books to see whether or not there is evidence for the Old Testament being sort of reliable. Yeah. Yeah. Be careful. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. But but the basic question itself is one that we should be asking. Yeah. You know, we, we should, because that actually is taking seriously the truth claim itself. Mm -hmm. If it's quite clear that I think that the biblical authors are claiming uh, the real God acted in real time right. and space and history. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, then we should be able to see the marks of that. Right. We, we should be able to discern the impact that, that that's made on the world. Yeah. Uh, that, that putting it to the test in this way is actually a way of taking the, the truth claim seriously mm -hmm. uh, on its own terms. And, and you're right. We don't have to simply assume that the Bible is the word of God. We simply have to approach it the way we approach other historical yeah. texts. So if you if you start with this being possibly historical, and then you say, okay, we do know that these particular passages here, we have evidence that this was around 800 BC. We have evidence that Isaiah was around 200 BC with the Dead Sea Scrolls mm -hmm. in the complete form that it looks like today. Yeah. Uh, so is there any explanation for how the texts that we have from Isaiah – uh, where it says, um, for unto us a son is given and whose name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. It's You have yeah. here this announcement of a divine Messiah in Isaiah's writings. Then you see that the divine Messiah suffers in chapter 53, as we've been saying. Mm -hmm. uh, then you look and you compare that to what eyewitnesses claimed they saw. I mean, one, one possible hypothesis could be that people in the New Testament period 
uh, wrote fiction as if this character that they invented fulfilled mm-hmm. these prophecies. Mm-hmm. Is that an impious thing to say? Let's examine that hypothesis. Oh, no. That, that's a question that we should at least ask uh, for sure. But you again, know. when we look at the Jewish context, we're actually encouraged to bring those absolutely, questions to the text, Absolutely. We? We, we're just applying Deuteronomy yeah. uh, by, by, by asking those very questions. We yeah. sh- here's a person claiming to be a divine spokesman. More than that, who's claiming to be the divine Messiah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah that's, claims like that need to be tested. Uh, because they're extraordinary claims. One um, of the the, uh, the things that I typically try to do to assure people this is not historical fiction is when you just kind of look at all the little details that only people who are witnesses in the first century could get right, mm-hmm. get right. Mm-hmm. And they get all these little details of the historical city names and the botany right. and the times and the places and the architectural details, names. I mean, Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses has this huge chapter on names. Yes. And they're all all the names in the New Testament are in the exact right proportion of the names we know existed from artifacts and ossuaries and other you know things. Yes. So in other words, this is not something you could make up. Like if I was going to make up a story in the 1800s, I would maybe put some older names, Ednas and Gertrudes and others. But I wouldn't <laughs> yes. get them in the right ratio right. right? with real history. This has the mark every way you look at it of real history. Yes. And then you yes. look at what these people claim uh, and you say, OK, here's what Peter says in his epistle. Uh, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The claim is to something that they saw outside of them, not to a feeling in their heart. Yes. They were eyewitnesses. We ourselves heard God's voice born from heaven just like the people did at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Peter goes on to say that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Yes. The prophetic word Mm -hmm. is now confirmed because of the eyewitness testimony of Mm -hmm. what they saw with their own. That's amazing to me because that idea of confirmation is totally different from that subjective idea of faith that we heard so much in the mm-hmm. popular imagination, mm-hmm. that confirmation, this is proven, it's confirmed. He says it elsewhere that you may know for certain in Acts chapter 2.22, know for certain that Jesus has been raised and is now mm-hmm. the Lord and Christ. And I love how Peter says in Acts 2, these things were not done in a corner. Yeah, they're not done in a corner. <laughs> he, he's talking in Jerusalem about events that the crowd would know. So yeah, there, there's an appeal to publicly accessible mm-hmm. information that can be seen to be true because of that testimony and that witness. In one interview uh, with Richard Bauckham that uh, we did years ago when I was working with Whitehorse, he said the whole process of um, sort of like the Jesus seminar approach where you say this saying of Jesus is inauthentic and this one might be true, that whole approach is just nonsense. What do you do when you're at a court of law? When you're at a court of law, you try a witness. The question is, is the witness trustworthy? You mm-hmm. prove the trustworthiness of the witness. And if he's a trustworthy witness, you trust him. <laughs> yes. I mean, let's just say, you know, you you have a witness who saw a crime. Uh, Colonel Mustard, he was in the billiard room and he had a <laughs> lead pipe uh, in his hand. And then Mrs. White or whoever, Professor Plum, saw it, right? Well, we can't know for sure. It's just a claim, right? But the question is, like, can we place him at the scene of the crime? Mm-hmm. You know, he happens to have a receipt from 7-Eleven, like – 10 minutes before, it puts him in the same town just five minutes away. It's plausible <laughs> right, that, that right. he was there. So if, if, but if, if that receipt was like 
four, you know, four hours away, mm-hmm. then it's not plausible what he's saying. Well, that kind of thing gives credibility to the witness. And when the yeah. witness is again and again and again proven credible, you trust him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just love that way of confirming yes. again and again when you look at the first century eyewitness information we have about who Jesus is and what he did. Every way you look at it, uh, this is an authentic narrative that has credibility and proves itself again and again. Yeah, which raises a good point that not every single detail in the Bible is confirmable by right. some piece of evidence outside right. the Bible. We don't have that. But we do have a really a remarkable record of, of historical knowledge that we can use to test. So, yeah. so I think what I hear you saying is when we compare the biblical testimony to the other historical, reliable historical information that we do have, when we test what we can test uh, in that way, and when we see the Bible's testimony uh, confirmed by that comparison, mm-hmm. then that should lead us to be trustworthy of the source itself. Exactly. Yeah, that's exa- that's yeah. exactly right. So, so we don't have to have you know external proofs of every single sentence in the Bible. We don't have that, uh, but we do have, I think, sufficient historical uh, information Precisely. to suggest that these are these are reliable historical sources. They are, I, I think, when you ask about the sources of our knowledge of the ancient world in general, mm-hmm. the Bible's historical credibility stacks up against any other ancient text and, and often far exceeds other yes. ancient texts in the quantity and quality of its confirmation from historical sources. Yep. Agreed. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you for these programs. My guest has been Dr. Mike Farley, visiting professor of applied theology at Covenant Seminary. Mike, thanks so much for being my guest and for helping our listeners to think through these important issues. Thank you, Shane. It's just been a privilege. Well, thanks for joining me for this edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. And if you'd like more information about the things you've heard on this program, there's a link in the show notes to a variety of related resources. The first resource is a free PDF document that includes all the quotations that I presented at the beginning of this program from Justin Martyr, Eusebius, and Augustine. Another resource happens to be a 20-page document that I've written titled, What is Faith? that walks through many of the issues that I've been addressing over the last few episodes. I'll send that document to you for a gift of any size to help support the work of this podcast, and you can find a link to donate there in the show notes section of this episode. If you prefer, you can also upgrade to a paid subscription via Substack. Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. 